Hello and welcome to the Wittered Report podcast, where we empower business advisors to transform businesses. This podcast is your source for information and news you need for your accounting, bookkeeping, or tax practice. Don't forget to check out scalingnewheights.com for information about our conference in June. And if you subscribe to this podcast, we will have a special registration offer just for you coming up soon. And now your hosts, Joe Woodard and Heather Satterley. Well, Heather, we are back again talking about exciting topics for accountants, bookkeepers, tax preparers, and auditors, and really just, I guess, anybody who cared to listen in. How are you? I'm doing really well. And you're right. Today's topic is definitely for anybody. And yeah. We all have to overcome task overload. And uh, oh, yeah. especially in today's world, it's like the the more we're able to do with technology, suddenly the more we have to do. It's like a never-ending downward spiral, or so it seems. But there are some ways to conquer it. So I'm going to jump right into that. I think I've got the topic for today. Um, awesome. So the uh, myths, let's dispel some myths first. Um, I have some pet peeves. I know that may surprise everybody listening in that Joe Woodard has pet peeves, uh, but uh, but I have tons of them, right? And one of my pet peeves is the phrase time management. Um, I know what people mean by it. I know there have been thousands, if not tens of thousands of books and articles and other kinds of teachings written about it using that phrase. So I don't want to nitpick, but it's a myth. And is and, and the prevalence of the phrase, it's interesting that it survived. It's like a phrase uh, measuring how square a, a circle is, yet somehow the, the oxymoron of time management exists as a concept, exists as a phrase. And I know the people have built entire business around it using that phrase. Now, when you read these books and when you read these articles and when you go to these seminars and you enroll in these programs, they're not doing time management. So I'm not saying that don't read a book on time management. I'm saying when you actually read the book, it won't be about time management because nobody can write about it. Nobody can write the mythological. What what you can actually manage is a task. That's what you can manage. You can manage tasks. You can manage priorities. You can manage responsibilities. You can manage outcomes. You can manage relationships. And the and when you're managing all of those, they will impact the use of not, not you can't even use time. They will they will impact how productive and effective you are in the currents of time. But time is an actual um, it's a it's a substance of the universe. It's equivalent to space, according to Einstein, space time. And for us to think that somehow we can corral that would be like thinking that we can corral, you know, the the energy of the ocean with a with a, a spoon. So um, so don't let the phrase make you try to do something that's not the way to effectively organize your world. It's a misleading phrase. It's not just me being OCD. Um, now the measurement, the measurement of productivity is not efficiency. That's another myth. And we're obsessed with efficiency as a profession because it, it now that we've gone fixed fee with our billing, 
we realize the more efficient we are, the more profitable we are. And that's great. That's so much better than the other when we're billing by the hour and the more efficient we were, the less money we made. So um, I like the fixed fee better. And I'm not uh, uh, I'm not saying efficiency isn't an admirable goal. I'm saying it's not the ultimate goal. The, the measure of productivity, whether you're talking about professional services, lawyers, accountants, bookkeepers, or you're just talking about life, is not how fast you get something done. That's a factor that's important. The measurement of, of, of uh, productivity that matters is effectiveness. How effective is the result of what I have produced? So I could get home at the end of the day and I could say, you know, honey, I had an amazing day. I got 60 tasks done in a single day, right? Which is a combination of efficiency and, and this myth that I can manage time. How much, how, how, what's the quantity of outputs that I could put into a single time container? And we call that productivity. But what if none of those 60 tasks are what I should have been doing on that day? Instead, there might've been one task and only one task that really mattered that was most effective for myself, my life, my company, my relationships, and the outcomes that I'm trying to drive, right? So when you manage the correct thing, priorities, responsibilities, outcomes, and relationships, and tasks, uh, tasks around those things, outcomes and relationships and, and, and effectiveness, then you will have a true measure of your productivity. So the truth is, the measurement of productivity is outputs effectiveness. And I'm going to add an interesting one, mental clarity. So uh, am I managing my, my tasks? Am I managing my desk and my responsibilities in such a way that I maintain mental clarity throughout the day? So drilling down on that a little bit, mental clarity, uh, life robs us of mental clarity through attention deficit, not attention deficit disorder, you can have, you can have attention deficit without having attention deficit disorder, right? You just have, you're trying to think about too many things at one time, and that creates a state of overwhelm, and that creates a downward spiral where you can you can concentrate less and less and less because of the emotional overwhelm that follows the attention deficit. So to avoid attention deficit in your day, you need to create a what I call a white space. It's a capture container. Uh, in, in, in the book, uh, Getting Things Done by David Allen, he calls it capture. And there's a certain kind of capture container that I call a white space. It could be a Word document you have up on your screen. It can be a piece of paper. I just say why, because that doesn't follow you around as well as, as something that's in the cloud, like a Google sheet or online Excel online sheet. But have a place where you stick things as they come up or as they cross your mind throughout the day and let that container drive. Then this is key. Everybody makes this mistake. The container should never contain anything over the course of twenty-four more than twenty-four hours. So it's 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 a place where you temporarily get it out of your brain and you place it into this container. Then you flush the container into a system that you trust and you check regularly. It doesn't matter what the system is. You can overthink that. It just has to be a system that's prioritized that has deadlines. That you that where you can set what you're going to do over the next day, and that you check these horizons of responsibility on a regular basis. If you don't trust your system, you don't check your system regularly, then you will stop relying on your system, and it will come back into your brain, and we're back to attention deficit, right? And and so ultimately, this comes down to prioritization, capture, container. Those are the th the 
the key things. Also, to create mental clarity, I use a system I codenamed boomerangs. If I know something's supposed to come back to me that I've thrown out into the universe, um, then I'm going to capture that it's supposed to come back because if it doesn't, we have a problem, right? In this world, there's a deficit of attention with an A. There's also a deficit of intention, I-N. So you have to have enough extra attention and you have to have enough extra intention that you can have attention and intention on behalf of others. That's called a boomerang. If I send you something, Heather, and I don't actually have to worry about you, but let's just hypothetically, I send you something, uh, what's going to happen? Even even if I do trust you, that I know you're going to get back to me, if I don't write down Heather to reply to, Heather to forward this, or whatever it is, into my white space, and then if it's going to be something you're doing a week from now or three days from now or three months from now, I put it in, into my, my task management system. Unless I do that and check it regularly, it tries to creep back into my brain. I'm trying to hold on to the fact that I'm counting on you to do something. Even if I'm not conscious at every moment that is happening. And then we're back to attention deficit. We're back to a lack of mental clarity. And we're back to that overwhelm with that downward spiral. So constantly capture. And the last thing I'll say on this, because I know we're, we're this is probably the most practical piece of what I'm going to share. If, if you do nothing else from this podcast, then just capture things in white space and get them out of your brain, then that would be your actionable moment. But you might think to yourself, you might be listening to this podcast right now while you're driving. And, uh, and, and, and while you're driving and while you're in the shower are the two places that things tend to come back into your mind. Oh, that's right. Heather was supposed to do such and such. Or I have to remember to go do such and such, right? So there are ways that you can do this safely, even while you're in motion or even while you're in the shower, not to get too TMI on this stuff, but that's, that's where ideas flood. Or while you're you know, putting on makeup or shaving your face, guys, girls, ladies. So the point is there are places where your hands may be occupied and it's not practical for you to capture things. But use your voice commands on your phone, your OK Google or your other thing I can't say right now because she'll pick up um, with the Siri. And you can tell those voice prompts to send you an email. So just say, send an email to me. Once you've identified who you are in your contact, send an email to me, make the subject of the email, the thing you want to capture in your white space. And now you're back to focused in the moment. And focus in the moment is where productivity happens. All right. I've got another myth here that you can multitask. You can't multitask. Now, I want to be clear on this because if, if, if we don't qualify what I mean by this, then you're going to go, but wait a minute. Yes, you can. I'm driving right now while I'm listening to this podcast. Aren't I doing two things at the same time? So let me, let me define what I mean by multitasking. You can't think two thoughts at the same time. You can't concentrate on two things using the same part of your brain at the same time. So but you can drive and listen to this podcast at the same time because you're using different parts of your brain and there's a tremendous amount of muscle memory involved in your drive right now. And you, and you, and, and I watch my daughter's volleyball matches while I listen to audiobooks with noise cancellation headphones, because I'm using two completely different parts of my brain. One's passive, one's active. But if I tried to listen to two audiobooks at the same time or read an audiobook, well, I read a book while I'm listening to an audiobook, I'm using the same part of my brain. You can't do that at the same time. Now, some of you are so smart uh, that you can 
oscillate very quickly back and forth between thinking two thoughts. And it appears that you're actually accomplishing two things with the same part of your brain at the same time. But what you're really doing is you're diminishing your overall input. If you did one of them each in sequence, subsequently, you would get done faster with greater effectiveness. And remember, the measurement of productivity is not efficiency. It's not how fast you got things done or how many things you got done within a container of time. It's effectiveness. And you can't maximize effectiveness if you're trying to concentrate on too much simultaneously. So the last myth that I'm going to share is the 110% myth. Now, I know we use this as a hyperbole. So again, I'm not trying to nitpick. Uh, just like time management was not just about the semantics. It's a misleading concept if we're not careful. This one is beyond the hyperbole. Um, it, it, can, it can make you believe an untruth that I can somehow not give 100% of my attention and effort into the productivity when I'm supposed to, right? During my work day that I've allotted to work, I can do something less than my best because I can make it up later. You know, it's like the old saying, you can't, you can't catch up on sleep. Now that's funny because I think you actually can. You just rest up, your body recuperates. So that one, that one's a counter myth, but, but this one's real. You can't, you can't get back the productivity that you didn't maximize during a time when you planned to be productive. You can't get that back, not without a time machine, not without the ability to slow down time and space and therefore all of the universal forces, which Thanos can do if he has all five infinity stones, but you can't, right? All six infinity stones, because I was going to get dinged by the geeks in here if I didn't correct myself. You can't do that. Um, and therefore, you have to make the most of these blocks of productivity that you've carved out. And blocking those moments is so important to work-life harmonization. If I'm not giving my absolute best whenever I block productivity and I know I can't be and have chosen not to be with my family, with my hobbies, with my friends, and whatever else I want to do in life, then I'm making the choice to take away from those things when I can engage them to get done what I didn't get done. I can't do 110% tomorrow. There is no 110%. Um, and then just very quickly, because I'm at the, the tail end of this segment, I want to speak very briefly about the psychological barriers to production, uh, to productivity. A lot of times we can't manage our task overload or we actually engineer task overload because we fail to act with intention and we fail to act with intention because of psychological barriers. The key psychological barrier is procrastination. And there's a myth that comes with this too. People think that procrastination is inaction. And almost always procrastination is not inaction. There is a concept in psychology called passive avoidance dread. You dread something and you get passive and you retreat into a space like uh, veg watching TV or even, uh, you know, over medicating with substances or whatever you do to escape because you want to forget that you people do sleep in this too. You want to forget that the thing is coming. That's called passive avoidance dread. That's not procrastination. Procrastination is not in action. Procrastination is acting on the wrong things. We do what's fun, easy and predictable so that we can keep ourselves busy and fool ourselves into thinking that we just don't have time to get to the thing that is unpredictable and fearful and hard, right? And then we tell excuses to ourselves. 
well, I would have done X, Y, Z, but I, my day just went sideways. Well, maybe it did. That happens. More likely, you went sideways and you, you, you pick those tasks that you enjoy the most. And the last thing I'll say is the psychological barriers uh, that are beyond procrastination are powerful deterrents. I already mentioned fear, uncertainty, and doubt, but there's worry and dread and fretting, anxiety, strife, self-consciousness, guilt, regret, remorse. I know I just rattled them all off and that's probably made everybody go, oh, what a list, right? But I want you to go back and I want you to look at the transcript at the on our podcast page. I want you to extract out those words. I want you to be cognizant of these forces in your life. Fear, uncertainty, doubt, worry, dread, fretting, anxiety, strife, self-consciousness, guilt, regret, and remorse. Now, most of these can be accommodated through planning. You can overcome fear, uncertainty, and doubt, worry, dread, and fretting. You can overcome that and anxiety as well with planning. All right. But to overcome strife and to overcome guilt, regret, and remorse, you can't do that unless you learn how to forgive. All right. And if I went from a little bit of teaching to meddling right there, I didn't have any other answer for you. I wish there was a magic wand, but you need to go read a book or you need to go talk to somebody that's good at forgiving or you need to get however you get uh, your professional or or spiritual development done. You got to learn how to forgive yourself and others or you're not going to get past the, the latter part of that list. All right. So clear your mind of all of that negative list I just read off. Clear your mind of attention deficit. Gain mental clarity, prioritize constantly, and measure the right thing. It's the effectiveness of what I'm doing. It is not how many things can I do within a container of time. All right, Heather, I'm done. What are your thoughts? That was a ton. That was a ton. It was really awesome and insightful. And, you know, I <clears throat> I think that the the big the big takeaway for me was when you're talking about that, you know, the myth that you can't, that you can't manage time, what you can manage is your behavior and the way that you spend time. And so I think that spending time, if you think about it, and I I can't remember who I heard this from, but it was somebody. And I remember going, oh, the little light bulb went off that if you think about time, we only have so much, which is why you can't really manage it because you have no control over it. What you can manage is what you do within the constraints of time. And that is a self that's discipline and management of, of the things that are important to you. So it really comes back to what you said, making the choices um, about what the outcomes that you want to see are and understanding the actions that you as a person have to you know, complete or do or tasks that you have to do in order to actually get to those outcomes. So I love that. And then the other thing that I was that I that kind of just popped up in my head, it's kind of fun, is that you're talking about the voice, you're talking to Siri or Alexa, right? Um, and I just had a funny story to share. It's it's not anything, you know, uh, earth shattering. But the other day I was in my kitchen and I said the magic words, but I actually said both of them. And I have both of them in my kitchen. And so a conversation started and it was hilarious. (laughs) And I couldn't figure out for a few minutes how to stop it because I was, one was talking and then the other started talking. And I just remember standing in my kitchen going, what is happening? And, uh, and it took me a minute to figure out how to, how to stop them. (laughs) 
So. Well, you know, with with the acceleration of artificial intelligence to go further down this this uh, rabbit hole, because it's a fun rabbit hole, um, I think a day will come whenever two machines are having an actual conversation in front of us and we, we're just the uh, observing party, you know. Right. Well, it yeah. felt like that. I mean, what was happening was they were having two different conversations, but yeah, my human brain- my human brain translated as they're talking to each other, which they, right. they actually weren't. But it gives but you the surreal moment, right? Which may be a little predictive of the future to like, come. Whoa, whoa, so I like the way you phrase that. I'm going to borrow that. And I'm going to try to always remember to give you credit, but the, uh, the, the promises. But the const- you know, what you do within the constraint <laughs> of time. I love that because, see, I was even I was going to let you get away with it because you're my co- podcast co-host. But I was going to pick at you later about spend time because that's another that's another misnomer. There's so many misnomers around. We can't spend the time because we can't control anything. About, I can control my money that I spend. But you you nailed it. You nailed it. The constraint of time. Time is a constraining force. And therefore, we have to create a, a positive tension with that constraining force and, and decide how we're going to you know, maximize within that constraint. So that's super. Super powerful. Any final thoughts on this before we move? Yeah, forward? no. I, I mean, just going back to the spending thing. I think that the big aha moment that I had heard from someone was, time is valuable because we are constrained by it. And so the person that said spend your time was using that metaphor, right? Yeah, metaphor. <laughs> I was like, I was correcting my grammar there. I was like, it's a similar metaphor. Metaphor. Um, they were using that metaphor because they wanted people to understand how valuable it was. Correct. And that when you have limited resources, you have to be very intentional about how you spend them. And so that was the point that the person that I, and I wish I could give attribution to it, was trying to make. And I think that that is absolutely valid. Um, yes, I agree. So, yeah. Well, and, and let me just answer that by saying time is valuable in, in the same way that gravity is valuable um, yes. and space is valuable. Um, without without this thing in existence in our universe, we would cease to exist. We would have no currents to, to which live our life. Right. I think, I think we don't say that enough. We don't qualify what we're saying because we're so against, we're trying to preach against the hourly bill that mm-hmm. we forget there is an actual constraint there that we have to recognize yes. and we have to to, we have to work within. And if we don't know how to do that, then yeah. Okay. That's, that's good stuff. Um, all right. So our next segment, and this is one of my favorites that we do all the time is, uh, our TV movie quote segment. You and I are both TV and movie buffs, and we like to extract things out of TVs and movies that have business applications. So, uh, you go first. Uh, what did you, what did you come across recently? So I, uh, there's a show called Silicon Valley, and I actually really loved when this show came out because <clears throat> you and I are both, you know, have been very closely involved with Silicon Valley and Intuit and the different, you know, tech partners that we've worked with. And so it was, it was fun because it was a way to kind of see the little lens into, um, into that world. Um, so in season one, episode eight, which was optimal tip to tip efficiency, Richard is about to pitch um, in this contest his idea for his his startup Pied Piper, and another contestant in in the um, the contest has just delivered a presentation that basically stole the idea and kind of one upped what they were planning to do. And he realizes that he's going to lose the competition and that his his product isn't going to work. It's just not going to work. So 
you know, he's talking to friends and they're, they're figuring out, you know, or they're talking about what to do. They realize that they really didn't understand their market. They didn't understand what the people wanted. And he's trying to figure out what's going on and they're looking for new jobs. <laughs> and all of a sudden he gets this eureka moment where something pops into his head. He goes back to his room and he works all night and he comes up with this pivot, goes in to pr do his presentation, is completely pivoted and pitches this new technology that's actually one-ups what he was concerned about. Um, and the takeaway was the fact that in business, we have to be incredibly adaptable and agile in our business because we really don't know what's coming around the corner, right? And we have to be able to pivot and change course if we're going to stay viable. So one of the things that you know, that, that was really interesting in this episode is that he still, he still worked on his core competency of the product that he was building, which was a file compression. It was a file compression tool. And so he was still focusing on that. What his big comment, which was the big takeaway for me was that they didn't understand what the customer wanted. And so they were focused on the wrong things. And the Eureka moment, which, you know, he doesn't tell you until you see his speech and his presentation, what that was, was that they were, they were going after the wrong solution because the solution they were going after did not meet the needs of what the market wanted. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's something, you know, um, our friends at Intuit, they say, don't fall in love with the solution, fall in love with the problem, Right. And that's the key to remaining agile within your business is to fall in love with the problem that you're solving, know your customer and never, ever, ever stop knowing your customer because we're people and we change and the world changes. And if you say, hey, I've got it, I've done it, I've, I've solved the problem and I never have to do anything again, you're going to eventually, your company and your product is, or, or service is going to eventually die a very slow death. Um, so you have to constantly be learning and listening. Love, love that. Um, and we're doing that right now. It's so funny that you uh, that you mentioned this. Um, and I know we're going to go a little bit deeper on this because you you teed this up and I just have to swing at it. But um, the we, we, we've been meeting with the members of our coach program in these chat rooms, these Zoom meetings, we call them fireside chats. And we've asked them that very thing because we want to fall in love with the problem. Mm -hmm. So um so we asked, uh, now it's probably 150 or so of our 300 members have already participated. And we asked them the question, if a genie were to grant you three wishes, you could only use it on your practice or yourself professionally, what would you wish for? And I think this is a fun list to read off because this is us falling in love with the problem, but it, it's also letting every one of you listening in know that you're not alone if these are your problems. Uh, this is a common thing. Um, and that there's also a place to go. If you're not a member, you can address them through our membership. But um, the things that the genie would grant would be a team that's large enough and equipped enough to play zone with client work, uh, more capacity um, and overcome attention deficit. That was actually something that came up in the meeting from today's podcast. Uh, workflow that's detailed and complete with all the, all the way down to daily cycles, right? Is this resonating with the audience? I'm getting, I'm getting nods from, from Heather, for sure. Strong understanding of business management principles so they can help their clients beyond the bookkeeping and manage their businesses better. Um, Tailor-made task management system. Comprehensive searchable database. Uh, knowledge base of all the knowledge in my practice. Automation. Full automation as maximized as it can be. Uh, a successful exit plan. 
um, some hiring strategies so I can hire the right people and, and fill these roles. Um, a vibrant, interactive company culture. Somebody said I would ask the genie for a full-time admin. Um, an effective advisory set of skills. I mean, if, if, you, if this is resonating, audience listening in, just know that you're on the same journey as hundreds of other firms that have expressed this to us very recently. And, um, and that, you know, if that makes you feel better, maybe it's the misery loves company make you feel better, but hopefully it's the, Hey, I'm not alone. Feel better is what I'm going after. All right. Now I'm going to get to mine. Um, it comes from Yellowstone, which I've quoted before. Um, and I reserve the right to quote from your Silicon Valley too, because it's, it's, <laughs> you can mine a lot of stuff out of that. So I may come back around to Yellowstone a lot. You know, the ranch is a business yeah. and it's so well-written. But this goes all the way back to the very first episode, episode number one, where the son is encouraging the father to sell the land because the land is worth billions and billions of dollars, not millions, but billions with a B. And he says, he says, dad, right now the ranch is losing money. Uh, We're not turning a profit on the operations of the ranch. Ranching is a dead industry. And if you sell the land, you could be one of the richest people in the world. And he turned and he said, you know, with the backdrop of all the spread of Montana behind him, you know, beautiful landscapes. He turns to his son and he says, the owner, John Dutton, he says, if I had all the money in the world, this is what I would buy. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so um, what I love about that quote is, is he was a, he was a, he's a man of purpose. He's not, he's not doing what he's doing ultimately because he wants to generate wealth. So it's not wrong to do so. And it stabilizes things if you have that. He's doing what he's doing because he believes in what he's doing. He's a purpose-driven business owner. Um, now, that can carry you too far. If you watch it, there's some cautionary tale in that too. But I want, I want everybody listening in to find the purpose in why you do what you do. And make that purpose, unlike John Dutton, where he makes that purpose intensely focused on the legacy of his industry, which isn't bad. It's just terribly nostalgic. And that's what gets him into trouble throughout the show. Make your purpose intensely customer focused, client focused. If you will, if you will connect your purpose to what benefits your client in a proactive way, then you will actually evolve purpose into true vision. And you'll create an ultimate why for not just your practice, but for your life. And you will also start asking the right questions about effectiveness because accuracy and timeliness and record keeping and compliance work is important. But Mm. if your vision is about making your client's life better, their business better, then you're going to start asking the right questions. How can I go beyond record keeping and compliance and and make that kind of transformation happen for my client? You know, I, I love that, Joe. And I think that I something that just popped into my head was, you know, when you're thinking that way, your product is a successful client. That's your product. Yes. That's your end product. Is yes. a successful client. It's not the things you're doing in your business. Your product is successful client. And I, and I, I'm so glad you mentioned that. And we've never discussed this. So you and I kind of arrived at that same truth. I, I, I kind of joke with people in, in when I'm teaching in, in, in training environments that, that, that we're all in the manufacturing business. We're not yeah. in the professional service business if we're doing it right. Cause right. we're in, in our product. And I say the same thing, our product 
is a transformed client, right? right. And then the raw materials uh, through which we make our product um, is what we have to focus on, right? Uh, that's our yeah. knowledge combined with the client's coachability, you know, and if we don't have a good raw material, we can't manufacture the product. Client has to be coachable. We have to have the skills. I love that. Gotcha. I love that. Okay. Um, I think uh, you're doing the book today. So I am doing book, the book and I'm book going back to about? school. I even wore my sweatshirt from school. Um, Joe, as you know, I went to Northeastern and I did a master's in innovation, which was a really wonderful program. Um, and one of the one of the core books that we read was The Innovator's Dilemma, which was written by Clayton Christensen. And really, I think this is a great book for everyone who's in business to read because it digs into the innovation adoption cycle and understanding it, it, it draws a really nice line between the things that, you know, the things we're looking to innovate, the new products, the things that we, you know, come up with and these earth shattering innovations that come through in our society. Um, it also teaches you about sustaining innovations, which are inv innovations that you introduce into your business just to keep your customers happy and improve your customer service or your product or the, the, <clears throat> the, um, uh, the, your product, right? Making it better and disruptive innovations, which are innovations that either create a new market or they make an existing market or product obsolete. So major takeaways, and I think these are things that are really interesting, and I think this is why people will love this book, is that the innovation adoption cycle is actually super duper long and so much longer than people actually think. So from the time that an idea is sparked to the time that it has mainstream adoption isn't just like 10 years. We're talking decades. So a couple of innovations that were really interesting that were mentioned in the book um, was the snowmobile. So the first snowmobile was actually introduced really early in, um, well, really late, I should say, in the 1800s. But when it was actually introduced, it, uh, people didn't understand why you would even want a snowmobile and no one ever bought them because at the time the market wasn't ready for it and they couldn't see the value in it. Well, you know, decades later, everybody's into, you know, super fun sports and going fast and doing all these things. And the snowmobile, the snowmobile is, is a huge success, but the market wasn't ready for it. So the market has to be primed to accept innovation because people People by nature are change adverse and they're likely not to recognize a need. So some of the examples of disruptive innovations that I'm sure, because when many of these first came out, I'm like, yeah, right. Like one was satellite radio, right? And I remember um, a good friend of mine said, why would I ever pay for radio? Radio is free. Why would I ever pay for ro radio? And this is never going to take off. And it didn't. It didn't take off for about 20 years where it became until it became mainstream. Um, another one is uh, the cloud, right? When the cloud was first introduced, especially in the accounting industry, which you and I were embedded in, Joe, you know, people said, I'm not going to put things in the cloud. I need my data here sitting in my office so that I know it's safe and I can put my hand on it. And, you know, I, I know it's here and I'm going to protect it. it. We weren't ready for it. Um, the, and, and other examples are Uber. You know, Airbnb, the iPod, there's so many. And the thing is, is that these innovations 
were actually sparked or the ideas came into existence 40, 50 years ago. It's just that the market wasn't ready for them because people didn't understand the value. And the, you know, the innovators, the people that had these ideas were thinking beyond where we are now. So there's lots of really cool things in the book that talks about how you can, uh, you know, not only how you can innovate, but the things that business leaders, you think you have this really great idea that everybody's going to love. He has a lot of uh, great information on what you need to look out for and how to tell if that great idea is ready for market and when you should wait and when you should move forward. So it's a really good book. Yeah, I love that. So I'm just going to say, I've, I've, I've got this little saying that's appropriate here, that if you're a one step ahead, you're a leader. If you're two steps ahead, you're a visionary. And if you're three steps ahead, you are a martyr. So um, that, that kind of fits, right? Some of these people seem like they were three steps ahead. And remember, a martyr's cause doesn't end with their failure. It's just that they were too far ahead. So um, right. their failure planted the seed for the ultimate success. Um, Tesla. But yeah, Tesla. Yes. Think about how long it took uh, before that takes off. And now it's revolutionized an entire industry. Exactly. So, but, but the cautionary tale there is do innovate, but don't get ahead of the market unless you have a lot of capital to burn. You can't, and That's we're, not right. all, and, we're not all and Elon Christensen Musk. covers that as well. He absolutely yeah. does. So it's, it's definitely a good book. And I think it'll really open up people's minds to how that works and why we see the things that we do in the market. Love that. Okay. So our next segment, we pick our favorite social posts from the last week or so. Um, mine is from Brian Streg, and he says, an extension is not permission to procrastinate until October. And what? I thought that was... <laughs> what? I thought that's exactly what it was for. But that's the thing. That's what's so cool is that quote is basically what we just talked about, right? <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah, no, 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 I know you're joking, but but this is Eisenhower Matrix stuff, right? Uh, the important and urgent gets all of our attention. The important and not urgent does. And so we use these extensions just as a way of procrastinating again. And because and, we're dreading fear, uncertainty, doubt, dread, uh, doing that tax return. So, uh, so that was posted on April the 18th. And I think he was trying to send that admonishment into the entire universe of business and life. Just please, please. But there's a truth underneath it. That we've talked about this whole podcast. Okay, oh, definitely. What, what's definitely. your favorite social post? So my social post was from uh, Tax Birdie. And they said, someone just called and said he was using TurboTax. Could we walk him through the progress process? And uh, <laughs> sir, this is not Lowe's Home Improvement. This is an accounting office. We don't offer do it right for less. And I just, I loved this tweet because we do it. We, you know, our clients come to us and they put us in this position of, you know, show me how to do it. And I think, you know, we walk a fine line where we want our clients to understand and value what we do, but we don't want them to do it themselves because they don't have, and they don't understand that there's a lot of training and CPE and, and, and knowledge that you have to have in order to do this right. So the big disconnect is that we make it seem easy. We make it seem easy because we have the experience, we've invested the time in our profession and our craft, and you know we've invested money. Um, and so to our clients, easy equals cheap, right? Easy equals cheap, and they shouldn't have to pay, uh, you know, to pay for it. So pulling a tooth, Joe, and I've seen this, and I hear this from people all the time, I go to the dentist, pulling a tooth only takes a minute. 
It only takes a minute and my dentist makes it look so easy. But I'm certainly not going to go pull somebody's tooth, right? No. And so, by the way, by the way, you can search for those videos too. There are people that do it at home. Um, that pull teeth? Believe it, that's actually I'm on the, yes. Just, just oh yeah, just gosh. do home tooth extraction on YouTube and start wincing. But yes, but it, but it will, but if you do watch that, if you have a strong stomach, it will drive Heather's point home. Some people just need to stay in their lane. There's a reason dentists exist. And there's a reason exactly. that accountants exist. And I'm not yeah. gonna I'm not gonna go try to build a custom home and then call an architect and say, "Could you teach me how to use AutoCAD?" I mean, everybody just exactly. serves a role in this universe. Let's everybody stay in their lane. All right, now we always like to end out every podcast episode by you sharing you're the senior editor of the Woodard Report. This is the Woodard Report podcast, and you always have your favorite article of the week. What is it this week? So I picked one of my articles. <laughs> I hope that's okay, Joe. That's perfectly um, fine. So, Be proud well, of what well, you're doing. Shameless plug here. Um, so in addition to being the editor of the Woodard Report, I'm also the vice president of the Accounting Cornerstone Foundation, um, which is a new uh, not-for-profit that was founded by Don Brolin, uh, and a bunch of other amazing thought leaders in our industry to help to create scholarships for accounting professionals to attend their first accounting conference. So Joe, you know, that's no lie. I've always, you know, thanked you immensely because attending Scaling New Heights 12 years ago, I think it was now changed my life. And so, um, you know, the Accounting Cornerstone Foundation was created to help those that maybe don't have the opportunity or the means to actually get to a conference and experience all the goodness that that brings to you personally and professionally, and you 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 become part of our community, which is incredibly helpful. So this group of accounting professionals um, on the board of the Accounting Cornerstone Foundation are raising money to fund all expense paid uh, admission and trips to accounting conferences like Scaling New Heights. So you can apply for a scholarship if that's you. We really want to give people the opportunity to do this because we feel strongly that it will change the trajectory of your career and very possibly your life. You can apply at accountingcornerstone.org. Go to the Woodard Report and read the article. You can uh, read about the inspiration for the foundation and the story behind it. It's really lovely. Um, and if you want to donate... Uh, to this really important cause, you can do that as well. So uh, really exciting stuff, really, you know, warms your heart. So proud of Dawn and all the work that she's put into making this a reality. Yeah, fantastic. All right. Well, this is another show. Uh, hopefully everybody enjoyed listening in. Thanks, Heather, for always sharing such such goodness. And we do encourage everybody to go read that article. It's uh, discoverable out there at the Woodard Report. All right. We're going to do this again in one week. I'll see you then, Heather. Okay. Thank you for joining us. For more information, please visit woodard.com slash podcast.